Hello, and welcome back to the Caliphs, the rise and fall of Arab power. I'm Zaid Wahab, and today we will discuss Al-Walid's succession, an unfortunately clumsy affair which needlessly damaged the Caliphate. With only a handful of contentious narrations, there isn't very much to go on, so this episode is even shakier than our usual fare. Despite this lack of material, it is important to dwell on what must have been some of the Ummah's most potent social forces, capable of having an impact even when it was at its most powerful. Episode 29, Unforced Error. We covered so much of Al-Walid's 10-year reign last time that I was almost tempted to include this part about his succession as well. It's not uncomplicated, but many of the narrations pertaining to this whole mess are gossipy, and they lean so obviously on the perceived personas of their characters that little of it struck me as very dependable. Ultimately, I decided against abridging the affair, because it provides us an opportunity to zoom in on the social forces that stressed the caliphate even when it was at its most powerful. Now let me be clear from the outset, these problems will not prove terminal. Although the cracks that come to the fore during these events will grow to pose a real danger to the ummah and take quite some time to remedy, they were not the beginning of the end. Okay, now that we have framed things a little, let's get started. You all remember how the caliph's father, Abdul Malik, spent the last year or two of his life fretting over his own succession. He had wanted to install his son Walid, and only managed to pry the position away from his brother's cold, dead hands. Now, I'm not suggesting that he had anything to do with Abdul Aziz's death, and none of our sources, so prone to hearsay and scandalous narrations themselves, do so either. Nope, Abdul Aziz was just an old guy who passed away, leaving his older brother with five months to set up his preferred succession arrangements before the Grim Reaper came back for the Caliph. Despite what must have been a tense arrangement for Abdul Malik, he put together something identical for his own succession, designating two sons as his heirs, first Walid, then Sulaiman. The obvious benefit to having more than one person in line is the stability it engendered. Should anything happen to the caliph, there was someone right there to fill his shoes, placating loyalists and frustrating would-be usurpers. Not that Abdul Malik's strong reign left any of those around. Still, it was a good policy, which had almost no downsides, as long as everybody got along, that is. Like last time, a good place to start is with Al-Hajjaj, whose political power only grew under the new caliph. In our previous episode, we kicked off Walid's reign by telling how Al-Hajjaj had written asking for permission to remove Muhallab's children from power. I've already speculated on the reasoning behind this request, and my best guess was that he did not particularly appreciate their independent-mindedness. It is not spelled out in the sources, so I can neither point to anything or be sure of it myself, but it's what makes the most sense to me. After having been repeatedly denied by Abdul Malik during his reign, Al-Hajjaj was finally allowed to redefine the leadership of Khurasan as he saw fit by the new caliph. He sent Qutayba to govern the province, and the new commander relieved Mufaddal ibn al-Muhallab, and gave him and his brothers orders to report to al-Hajjaj in his Iraqi capital of Wasit. 
In case anyone needs a reminder about Wasit, it was the city Al-Hajjaj had founded between Kufa and Basra, and filled with Syrians to keep their rebellious Iraqis in check. There are different stories about what the eldest of Muhallab's children, Yazid, was up to at the time, but it doesn't really matter. Within a few months, he and his brothers were in Al-Hajjaj's dungeons. I'm going to ignore some of the diverse opinions we have in the sources and simply report that the men were accused of financial impropriety. Al-Hajjaj demanded they pay 6 million dirhams in money they owed the caliphate if they wanted to be released, and despite being widely reported, I have no clue how this sum was arrived at. To put it into perspective, we're told that the annual revenue from the entire East during Al-Hajjaj's time was 25 million, so 6 million was as hefty a fine as it sounds. I don't want us to get sidetracked, but it's worth noting that if we use Ali Yaqubi's estimates for Iraqi taxation revenue during Muawiyah's time, it adds up to a whopping 575 million, 23 times higher from an area about two-thirds as large as what Al-Hajjaj ruled over. This shows just how financially ruinous Al-Hajjaj's governorship of the province was. But hey, at least everyone was too dead or terrified to rebel, right? Anyway, you might be wondering what this all has to do with who succeeded Al-Walid, so let me circle back to the point. Within a year or four, the sons of Muhallab escaped from their jail in Wasit. Here too there is lots of disagreement, the most common version being one where some of their visitors smuggled in wigs and fake beards, and they just walked out among them undetected. But where would they go? The entire east was out of the question, and the caliph had already shown a clear preference for al-Hajjaj by allowing him to imprison them, so Syria wasn't an option either. If only there was someone whose patronage would make them untouchable. Someone with caliph-like authority. I think you see where I am so unsubtly going with this. The Muhallabs, that's what I'm calling them from now on, went to Sulaiman. The caliph's brother and apparent successor had been governing Palestine since the turn of the century. He welcomed them to his court and gave them the shelter they so desperately required. Some narrations explain this by saying that Sulaiman had always hated al-Hajjaj and was eager at any opportunity to hurt him. Others stress the tribal element, highlighting how Palestine was a bastion of Qahtani power in Syria, and that the Muhallabs, as the prominent house of the Omani Ezd, represented the Qahtanis when contrasted to the Adnani al-Hajjaj and the various Ta'ifi kin of his he was always promoting. We will have to dwell on the tribal dimension in this episode, so maybe a short refresher is in order. The Qahtani tribes of Jordan, Palestine, and Syria were the ones who had championed the Umayyads back to power. But Abdul Malik only recovered the entire caliphate by bringing the Adnani coalition, its tribes mainly from northern Syria and Mesopotamia, back on his side. We haven't had much to say about the conflict since then, not because it had died down, but thanks to Abdul Malik's masterful handling of its coalitions. The capable caliph kept each side happy, busy, and productive, a real credit to his leadership which goes unsung precisely because it is marked by an absence of narrations. As you're about to find out, the sons couldn't quite match their father's skill. In Iraq and the East, the largest tribal rift was caused by the influx of people to Basra when it had flourished under Ziyad's rule, especially when many Omani tribes made the move in a relatively short span. They recognized one another as sons of Ezd, and their number and friends spooked the pre-existing power in the region the massive tribe of Tamim. Perhaps it was due to genealogical factors, is claimed, or cultural factors or geopolitical ones, 
but the Azdrabi'a alliance was recognized as Qahtani, while the Tamim were considered Adnani. There are sources that say thousands of Azd were already living in Suleiman's domain before Muhallab's arrival, suggesting that the tribe's connection to the Qahtani alliance was pre-existing, which I suppose could have also been the case. Here's my take, though. Despite the disagreement about this in the sources, it is clear that Suleiman governed a solidly Qahtani province. I think he was influenced by his supporters over time, and began to see things through this lens of a tribal conflict. To me, this explains his animus against al-Hajjaj. It was imported from the Qahtanis, who may have resented his success, or his perceived indispensability to the caliphate. Anyway, even if I'm wrong about their attitudes towards al-Hajjaj, it will become clear just how tribally biased Suleiman was. That part is not in question. He formed close bonds with the many influential Qahtani tribes, who must have felt their service to the Umayyads justified the honor of having such a prominent member of their line to ally with as governor. I guess this was sort of his job in a way, but his attachment to one side in the tribal conflict would go on to have serious repercussions for the Ummah. That's all later, though. Let us get back to the now, or then. Speaking of time, let me date all of this. Al-Walid had come to power in 705, so that's when the Muhallabs were stripped of their positions in the east. They are said to have escaped al-Hajjaj's jail in 709, and so this was all about halfway into Walid's ten-year reign. Al-Hajjaj was quick to complain to Damascus, and the caliph was of course not pleased with any of it. He ordered that Yazid and his brothers be sent back to the governor of Iraq immediately for their outstanding fines. Here we are told Suleiman offered to pay the sum himself if it guaranteed their freedom and pardon. This actually had echoes in the very recent past. Musa ibn Nusayr was once blamed for a missing sum of money during Abdul Malik's reign, and he was threatened with punishment. He had sought the protection of the caliph's brother and erstwhile successor Abdul Aziz, and was eternally grateful after Abdul Aziz paid the amount on his behalf. That's why it was such a compromise for Abdul Malik to recall Hassan ibn Nu'man and appoint Musa in his place when he was trying to get his brother on board with his succession plans. It was like ceding all the gains in Africa to Abdul Aziz. Musa is, of course, the general who went on to ally with the Berbers and conquer Morocco and Spain. So this loyalist swapping did have some precedent, but Suleiman's suggestion was rebuffed, and that Hajjaj continued to press the caliph to have the Muhallabs sent back to him. He painted them as dangerous radicals, whose very existence was a threat to the Ummah because it encouraged defiance in the East. This argument had worked before, and had once even led al-Walid to remove a cousin of his from the governorship of Medina. Al-Hajjaj had complained that Iraqi dissidents had fled his domain for Medina and were using the city as a base to plot against the Umayyads. The city's governor was the pious Omar, son of Abdul Aziz, and he was replaced by a harsher man when he proved incapable of punishing these men sufficiently. The new governor had no qualms about sending every single Iraqi back to al-Hajjaj, In any case, there was no way the caliph could just replace Suleiman in the same way. But urged on by al-Hajjaj, he repeatedly asked his brother to release the muhallabs to him, and finally demanded that their eldest Yazid be sent to Damascus in chains. Suleiman really stepped up his support then, and we are told he chained his own son to Yazid and sent them both to the caliph with a letter declaring his closeness to the sons of muhallab. The caliph was moved by the gesture and he told al-Hajjaj to desist with his harassment of the Muhallabs. This probably took place around 713, 
and Yazid returned to Palestine and spent his days in Sulaiman's court. While this ended the standoff between the two brothers, it left each of them with loyal supporters who despised one another. Although Al-Walid was only 40 at this time, he had begun to ponder the matter of his own succession more actively following the birth of his son a few years earlier. Just like his father before him, he wanted to have him designated as his successor, but felt unable to cajole Suleiman into giving up his place in line. Relenting on the return of the Muhallabs may have been one of the compromises he hoped would convince his brother, or maybe it was made for the benefit of the Qahtanis, or just the Azd even. Al-Walid already had the support of Al-Hajjaj, who promised that he would ensure the entire East pledged to Al-Walid's son when the time came. But man proposes and God disposes, and 714 proved to be a fateful year for a very different reason. It was when the 54-year-old Al-Hajjaj passed away. He caught something and died of it in Wasit, bringing an end to his 20-year-long reign over Iraq and the East. Al-Mas'udi, who out of our three sources I think has the most to say about Al-Hajjaj, reports that without counting those who died fighting in the many wars he participated in, Al-Hajjaj was responsible for over 120,000 deaths, saying 50,000 men and 30,000 women perished in his jails. These were large, open-air enclosures, which left their detainees exposed to the elements. I can't estimate how much of this is exaggeration. The numbers are really high, but considering the deep pacification of Iraq, they may not be too far off. Reading about him firsthand in the sources, I can confirm that Al-Hajjaj has the bloodiest reputation of any Arab governor so far. The death of Al-Hajjaj upended Al-Walid's succession plans, and he passed away himself the next year in 715 AD, leaving his brother Suleiman to ascend to the throne unopposed. Before we discuss the new caliph's first moves, we should take this opportunity to reflect on Walid's reign and pass our final judgment. I think he loses a lot of points for even investigating the possibility of appointing his son as his successor when the kid hadn't even turned seven. To do it so inelegantly, though, by talking to Al-Hajjaj about it when he knew that the governor had beef with his brother's close partisan, was just asking for trouble. Sure, he died before the trouble really got going, but thanks to his shifty political maneuvering, the Ummah now had a caliph who was strongly biased towards his own partisans as opposed to a leader who could begin from a place of balance. It's worth noting that very little of what I told you about Al-Walid goes uncontested, and so we can't be sure we have a firm understanding of events during his time. It may sound strange, but this relatively high level of disagreement comes despite a real paucity of narrations about the caliph. In one of his complaints about Al-Walid, Al-Yaqubi says that he was the first to draw a veil around the caliph. And although he probably meant something more literal by it, reading these accounts I really feel like the caliph is hidden from sight. We are now discussing the lesser-known leaders of the Ummah. And I don't just mean in a popular sense, as in lay people don't often know much about these caliphs. The earliest sources themselves suffer from a dearth of information about Walid and a number of his successors. It's one of the more noticeable shifts we get in our material as it progresses, one that makes it difficult to be sure what exactly was going on. If Abdul Malik had managed the tribal rift masterfully, then Walid can be said to have ignored it almost entirely until the very end, when he aggravated it by trying to get some of his governors to pledge to support his son. 
we don't get many tribally charged narrations during his early reign, at least nothing problematic. The East suffered more from these tribal divides than Syria and Africa, especially Khorasan. A Tamim had practically run the place, badly, I might add, before al-Hajjaj had appointed Muhallab to retake all its lost provinces. The Tamim were such a large tribe that, absent a rival to unite against, their unity quickly gave way to infighting, so all they did when they had the East to themselves was squabble over which of their elders got to mismanage it. Al-Muhallab brought his Ezd kinsmen into the East, and his presence rebalanced things, tribally speaking. The Tamim don't seem to have minded his leadership so much, probably because of how incredible he was at war, but they do seem to have taken issue with his sons. In any case, they had grown used to the absence of their rivals under al-Hajjaj's leadership, but now that Sulaiman was in charge, they had a rude awakening to look forward to. The Muhallabs were going to ride back into town. A lot of this drama about Walid's succession is vehemently denied in pro-Umayyad sources, which insist that he had never tried to install his son and that al-Hajjaj had never promised to help him do so. These accounts would be much more convincing if it weren't for Suleyman's very first orders, which were to remove and punish all the men al-Hajjaj had left in charge. Now I fully expect every new caliph to place his own trusted loyalists in charge, but the fashion in which this was carried out was really brutal. First there was al-Hajjaj's kin, Muhammad ibn Qasim, in charge of Sindh. He was dispossessed, recalled to Damascus, and died of torture along the way. While we don't get a lot of details, there is a lot of sad poetry in there, rightfully lamenting how faithlessly the caliphate was treating its most loyal and effective champions. Qutayba ibn Muslim, governor of Khurasan and conqueror of everything around it, gets a slightly longer tale, probably because there are reports of letters from him to Al-Walid in which he pledged to support the ascension of the caliph's son when the time came. We are told he wrote to the new caliph first, reminding him of his many achievements in service of the caliphate, and saying he was prepared to take everyone's pledge for al-Sulayman if the caliph would only confirm him as governor of Khurasan. A subsequent letter threatened that Qutayba would, quote, fill the world with horses and steel if the new caliph planned on sending Yazid ibn al-Muhallab to Khurasan. Qutayba may have believed he was capable of making such threats because he wielded absolute power in his region, and the many peoples he had conquered knew him as king of the Arabs. He must have also been unaware of how much he had alienated the Arabs under him with his use and rewarding of locals in his armies. Qutayba never got a chance to fill Sulaiman's world with anything, and he was ambushed and killed by some Arabs under his command, probably seeking to curry favor with the new caliph. Sulaiman didn't think he had any need for al-Hajjaj's men, of course. He had the Muhallabs to depend on. The caliph first appointed Yazid as governor of Iraq, al-Hajjaj's old position, but it didn't really work out as planned. Yazid chafed under the dominance of the Tamim in the country. They had so much power that even the Sayan of Ezd could not rival their influence. Suleyman himself had granted the Tamim powerful positions throughout Iraq in what may have been a clumsy attempt at making the two work together. If that was the plan, then it failed, and within a year, Yazid was made governor of Khurasan instead. He enjoyed being back in charge of his father's lands much more, and his brothers held various positions of power across the east. We will continue our discussion of Suleiman's reign next time, but before we wrap up for today, I want to pull back and try to appreciate some of these new stresses in the caliphate. 
It is telling that we get a spike in narrations with tribal themes, many featuring Tamim during this phase. And it is something which underlines a weakening in the caliph's control over his ummah. Another worrying trend was the excessive punishment of some of the most accomplished generals in the caliphate's armies. A more powerful leader would have been able to make better use of their talents, without needing to be worried about their influence. Finally, the problem we have already highlighted deserves to be stated once again. It was far from ideal that the new caliph was so clearly biased when it came to the tribal conflict. As we saw with his patronage of the Tamim in Iraq, he did try to be more equitable as caliph, but all his closest advisors were Qahtani Syrians, who had very sharply defined interests vis-à-vis their rivals. Again, these problems won't prove fatal to the caliphate, but they will have repercussions later, and for now they serve as clear indicators of growing disunity. It may be confusing at times to try and see things through a tribal lens, but it ultimately explains a lot so it's worth keeping up with. I will try and minimize discussion of the tribal rift when I feel like it's warranted, but it will accompany us quite a long time. We'll talk more about its consequences during Suleiman's time next episode as we conclude one Umayyad's reign and introduce another's, here on the Caliphs, the rise and fall of Arab power. (laughs) 